Hello and welcome to Organising to Win, the trade union podcast from Unison Northwest. I'm James Ball and in this November edition we'll be exploring the murky reactionary world of union busting. That is the practice by employers of deliberately and strategically undermining their staff who wish to establish an independent trade union in the workplace. I'll be speaking to academic and Ruskin College Oxford lecturer Pete Martin about the history of union busting and also chatting to our very own Kevin Lucas about how workers can spot and tackle these nasty nefarious tactics when they turn up on their own doorstep. But first, last month in October saw the Trade Union Congress hold their Building Stronger Unions organising convention in Southport, and we went along to find out what was on the agenda. Back in the day, in the kind of late 90s, early 90s, these organising conferences were fairly common because we all had kind of got on to the fact that we're a movement in crisis and we need to do something to revive our movement. But time goes on and unions adopt organising strategies, we train organisers and we get on with the work. And then things like conservative governments come back and austerity comes along and economic crises come along. And we kind of get a bit preoccupied with all of that and we forget about the core task of remembering that the best way to address all of those issues is to have a strong trade union movement. Well, that was Carl Roper, the TUC's national organiser, speaking during the opening plenary session. And I caught up with Carl and asked him that given a lot of social attitude research, such as the government's own workplace employment relations survey, shows that people's concerns about work haven't got any less, how can unions tackle a pattern of ongoing decline to become a relevant force for change in large sections of our economy where organised labour isn't a feature of industrial relations and workers don't have an independent voice at work? I mean, I think, I think the answer to that question is, is that we've got to improve our capacity to do two things. We've got to look after the people who are already in membership and we've got, to, we've got to build membership where we already have recognition. I think that they're one and the same thing. But we've also got to cr- increase our capacity to reach out into the private sector where the vast majority of people work and those survey results are informed by, in the main by people in the private sector, many of whom will have never been in a union, will have never worked anywhere where there was a union. And so this world of trade unionism and collectivism is frankly alien to them and even if it was something that they wanted they wouldn't be entirely sure about how to get it and i think that's a kind of, that's the almost like the existential problem that we face as a movement so what's the importance of the organizing approach in addressing that and what does the organizing approach mean in practice well i think in terms of addressing well i think in you know we used to talk about an organizer model which was a kind of process by which you kind of identified issues in a workplace identified leaders and then used that to build membership and get recognition i still think that's a relevant model in um in significant parts of the economy the first problem in doing that is again the capacity to have organisers and reps who can actually put that model into practice. The second one is I think that model is being tested by the way employment is uh, developing, by the nature of jobs, the nature of employment. Next year there will be more people self-employed in the UK than work in the public sector. We have not come up with a model of trade unionism that is compatible with their experiences of work. Now I am, there are lots of problems with the kind of the Uber, you know, sort of delivery, you know, almost like kind of um, 
false self-employment. I don't think it's defeatist, though, to say that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. What we're going to have to do is we have, in many other kind of sectors in the past, was to mitigate and prevent the worst excesses of that. When people used to work down coal mines, you know, it was always a dangerous job. Trade unions didn't stop it being a dangerous job. It just became a less dangerous job. And I think, you know, that's the kind of approach, um, that's the kind of approach we need to adopt to those uh, people working like that. They're not the majority, but it is the way employment is going and we've got to come up with a model of organising those people and getting in collective bargaining on behalf of those people that works for the way they work and I don't think we're there yet. Great, just one final question, we ask everybody this. So if you could give a union activist one um, suggestion, one top tip, one thing that they could do tomorrow to build a stronger union, what, what would it be? Um, improve one-on-one -on -one communication. And why do you say that? Because I just think it's the talking to people, finding out about what they care and concern about, finding out about what they're fearful about, why they won't get involved, why they won't get active, why they won't join a union, is the most precious thing. And I think once you've learnt it yourself, it's easy to teach to other people. And we need activists talking to members and members talking to workers. And if we do that more often, we'll be a better, stronger movement. Carl Roper there, the TUC's national organiser. So, as I mentioned before, this month we're focusing on the topic of union busting, which is the practice of undermining people in the workplace who are trying to set up an independent trade union. Uh, in 2008, the TUC published a Logan report into the phenomenon of union busting, which began life in the United States as early as the late 19th century and has now progressed to be big business, with consultants often earning hundreds of thousands of pounds in fees for their services. The research shows that the cost of these operations can be as high as $2,400 per employee in the US example, which is money that arguably would be better spent improving workers' terms and conditions. Pete Martin is a lecturer at Ruskin College, Oxford, who's conducting his PhD research into union busting tactics, and I spoke to him about where they came from, what they are, and why there's such a pernicious influence on workers' rights and freedoms. Well, union busting, well, traditionally, I, th I think we've always had a level of, low level of, um, what I would call maybe union avoidance in, in the UK, where it really is uh, sort of um, quite overt is in the States. So in America, um, I've had quite a long history of adversarial uh, employee relations. And, you know, over the last sort of 20, 30 years, we've seen it become sort of union busting techniques become more sort of mainstream and part of human resource management um, techniques. So I think in the America, um, it's a little bit more upfront. It's more out in the open. Uh, within the UK, I think we've all, always had some sort of level of union avoidance. My concern is that some companies are looking um, to things that have happened in the States and, hey, let's use those techniques to batter workers in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think the big problem we've got as well is that you know the current government and its attitude to trade unions and collective bargaining has almost given the green light hasn't it to uh, uk companies to use these sort of underhand and sort of sneaky techniques um in uk workplaces so is it something because i think some people think of this as quite a new development um where, yeah. where did it all start uh, I, I think it's really difficult to put your finger on 
uh, give you a date. It'd be great to give you a date of like, oh, 1805 it all started. Uh, but part of my research, I, I, I started to look at the American angle and um, started to specifically look at one of those well-known companies still going today, uh, everybody's heard of, is the, is the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Uh, started by uh, Pinkerton in the mid-80s, I believe. Um, uh, started off as a mainly um, a sort of protection on the railroads uh, and stop stop um, stop people sort of um, sort of robbing them. Um, that expanded into uh, sort of more into the sort of strike breaking area because quite lucrative. And I think they've just taken it on from there. I think it's difficult to say it started here, it started on this date. It just seems to have sort of grown and grown. And maybe maybe it's a reaction to uh, maybe workers getting a little bit too much power. Maybe it's big business's way of sort of fighting back, maybe. So sometimes it's a bit like trying to plant fog. You can't really put your finger on it. And that certainly is the case in the UK. Uh, you can do a little bit of research and, and you know you, you can find writing in, in the States around it. Um, quite difficult to find anything written in, in, in the UK context. Has there been a change in the kind of tactics that have been used by union busters from the beginning of the 20th century yeah. and the 19th century through to yeah. today? Is it quite a different... I think initially it was more what I'd like to call sort of more hands-on. So it was more sort of hiring thugs to go and break strikes up with pickaxe handles and, and coshes. Um but I think over the years, it's, it's become a little bit more sophisticated. I would imagine some of this still goes on, um, but a lot of the uh, American firms have sort of turned it into this sort of industry and a, and a dark art, really. So a lot more sophisticated, a lot more willing to explore avenues of using legislation uh, to stop unions organising. Um, the art of persuasion to persuade people is a bad idea to get involved with unions. And generally, I suppose, painting unions in a really bad light uh, to put people off. So what kind of things, uh, what kind of things can union reps and activists and members look out for in their employer in terms of, uh, you know, so the, the telltale signs of union busting? Is it always really obvious when the employer's starting to undertake those sorts of tactics or, or not? Uh, what, what? Some of it is, some of it isn't. I think one of the big things fairly recently is this explosion of employee engagement and employee voice. So uh, if you see that your company has a long tradition of being quite anti-union but all of a sudden wants an open communication uh, channel uh, to you, I would be a little bit suspect. Maybe, though, the employee's doing it for the right reasons, but you know, me being the cynical old bitten rep, workplace rep, I'll be a little bit suspicious about it. So I want to have a... That sounds great though, employee engagement, more employee it engagement, does, doesn't it? employee voice, what's wrong I, with that? I we want that. We would, wouldn't want to say in how the company's run, wouldn't we? But very often it's, it's about um, setting up alternatives to established and recognised trade union within the workplace. So typically you may well see um, uh, an employee forum set up to give everybody a say and the ba- you know the basic argument would be well the union only speaks for union members there's a lot of non-union members here who haven't got a voice so the company's giving them a voice by setting up a forum i mean some companies would even pay the subscription for you for you to join that forum 
Um, what you then see is a slow undermining of the established collective bowling structure. So, for example, if things, if you, if employees wanted something done, the employer would give more weight to the employee forum rather than the union. So, shut the union out. Say yes to the employee forum. Say no to the established union reps. And slowly, people will start to think, actually the employee voice or employee engagement form has got more power than the union, people tend to leave the union and the union withers and dies. And what when the with, union has withered and died, what yeah. do you tend to see then? Do, do the, do the, does the employee forum still get taken so seriously? Or? Uh, well, uh, various things can happen. It, the employee forum can be rolled up, uh, you know, and the excuse would be, well, it's had its day and, and what have you. Uh, the open door policy becomes a firmly shut the door policy to most people, open to some, those who are pro-employer. Um, yeah, so once the union's gone, that's it, the door, the, the attitude changes back to back to how it was before. So is there anything else other than employee engagement forums, is there anything else that um, is a bit of a, an indicator or a sign that there might be... <clears throat> That there might be some um, hidden agenda in there. Attitudinal change to the uh, workplace representatives. So we may have had a, you know, in one workplace, we may have had a really, really good relationship. They, that may well change. So lack of access to managers, uh, for example. Um, isolation of particular reps. Uh, worst case scenario is, is uh, dismissal. Uh, some reps, and we've seen that fairly recently in some companies where senior lay activists have been specifically targeted and and dismissed. So it's almost uh, like cutting the head off the monster. So get rid of senior activists, it starts to dismantle the branch structure. Um, so, you know, very often it can be quite brutal like that. So we need to look out for things like that. And when we've seen them, what can we do? What tips would you have for union reps? who think that their employer um, is either, you know, uh, starting to engage in some underhand, uh, some of the more underhand side of uh, human resources management, if you like, or if they're employing an employee relations and inverted commas consultant, what what kind of things can they do? I think part of it is myth-busting because a lot of it is built on deceit and lies. So there may well be a campaign where the employer or the middle junior managers may start to give some false information about the way the union works. Very often the message is the union's a third party, has no interest in, in the memberships, just interest in the subs. And there'll be a lot of disinformation. Where we need to get in is bust those myths, say actually, this is what the union does. The union isn't third party, it's actually is. Mm. It's not some headquarters in London, mm. it's actually the members within the branch that's the union. Uh, and yes, the union looks after everything. It's not just about banging the table every April for pay rise. The union does things 365 days of the year. There's learning, isn't there? There's health and safety. Uh, there's all that sort of serv- well, so the services that we give uh, and the way that we organise, that's, that's the way to do it. So it's a bit of myth-busting. Uh, and opening people's my- eyes to actually what the employer's doing. Although it wants to be open and give everybody a voice, is it truly a voice? Have you truly got a say? Not really. It's only the union that can do that for you. So it's it, it's people think it's quite a difficult thing to do. It's about getting back on the shop floor, talking to your members about what's going on, 
being quite open and transparent about how, how the union works and being quite proud in what you do, celebrating what we've done over the year as a union. I think very often uh, we only talk about the bad stuff, the good stuff tends to get left behind. So it's about celebrating what the, what the union means to people, getting them to understand that they are the union, not, not some officer back down in London. Now, to gain an appreciation of what all this means for Unison activists and how we can tackle aggressive HR anti-union techniques where we find them, I spoke to Kevin Lucas, our regional lead for organising. Kevin, how do these uh, union-busting tactics and techniques tend to manifest themselves in the Unison context and experience, and how can branches recognise the signs? Well, yeah, I think there's different levels when we talk about union-busting. On, on one level, you've got this the US union avoidance consultants that we've heard something about who, who essentially come in, invited by an employer, funded very well by an employer, to essentially very effective, well-resourced, professional organising campaigns against the union. And they would do all the techniques that, techniques that we would teach to our activists, but they're doing extremely well. So mapping the workplace to work out where their allies and, and enemies are. Producing highly professional literature critical of the union, designed to undermine support for the union. And only creating a crisis for the union by harassing or sacking activists whilst being extremely uh, kind and supportive to staff through pay rises or improvements to terms and conditions or whatever it may be. Uh, and as far-fetched as some of this might sound to some people, these, these buses have been active in, in the UK for some time and we've seen them campaign um, on behalf of Amazon, Kettle Chips, Car Phone Warehouse and cleaner logistics, just to name a few. So at one end, we, we, there is a threat, there is a risk from these um, US um, consultants. But I think what, what we see more usually within Unison would be hostile human resources techniques, which again are aimed to weaken or undermine the union, but in a more subtle way. But, but as many of our activists will know, they can still be extremely effective. So, you know, some of the most common things we see is the restriction on facility time. Employers that we deal with understand very well that, that our activists are our, are our lifeblood. And if you restrict the time they have to do their tasks, it's going to weaken the union. Uh, a failure or refusal to provide the kind of information we need during things such as collective consultations, again, limits, restricts our ability to, to function effectively and, and, mm. and, and sometimes reduces the support we then get from our members. In some places, um, you know, there's a there's a, a perception of a lack of career opportunities for union activists, and, and whilst that is a perception, and that again threatens the union. If people believe getting involved in the union is going to stunt their career, then then many of them won't for that reason. And we've also seen employers start to establish um, uh, informal structures or, or shadow structures to for consultation and, and, and information sharing with staff that that seek to undermine or to replace um, the, the existing recognised units and structures. So what are the risks to staff of those shadow structures? You know, staff representatives who aren't associated with any trade union but are consulted on um, proposed changes at work. What, what are the risks there, if that's allowed to... Uh... Well, I mean, the, the intention of those is, is essentially they're a complete... They're a sham. They're a sham to give the impression that workers are involved in a, in a collective constructive process whilst having absolutely no power and no teeth and can be completely ignored and avoided by by the employer so you know it, it, it's it's a calculated way for a boss to undermine the union because it gives the impression of, of worker involvement in decision makers whilst actually providing no real real power or change for 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 the wider workforce yeah and I suppose as well there's a lot of evidence 
um, that in cases where union busters have, or even just hostile employers have, um, set up these these shadow systems, and then when the union has has gone, when the union has been sidelined, uh, the consultation and engagement with those shadow structures diminishes because uh, there's nothing to hold the employer to account. Yeah, certainly. So, and we've had, I mean, we've had a, a, a case recently where an employer refused, private sector employer refused to recognise Unison as the appropriate representative for a Tupi consultation and because they were aware that they then you know had a risk of a of a protective rule claim against them they set up their own structures and 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 got their own people elected to those positions um but anyone who who they didn't like so our members for example who sought election and got elected they then advised them that they would be held personally legally financially responsible for any duff advice or representation they gave during the course of their role so they set these structures up and then, you know, kind of viciously attack anyone who, who gets those positions that they that they don't want, essentially. Mm. Mm. And what can branches do um, if they suspect that some of these strategies are being employed? How can how can they tackle them? Yeah. Well, we're currently organising within within social care, as you know, and we're we're very mindful of this. Um, I mean, the, the social care, the major chains operating the social care uh, are making millions and millions of pounds off the back of low paid. And vulnerable workers and many of the biggest players are owned by private equity funds many of them some of them are are american owned and so we're not expecting them to just roll over and accede to the unison demands in terms of implementing the ethical care chart because obviously if they do that it, it will have an effect on their profit levels so so we're expecting a response from some of these employers at, at some point as soon as they understand and appreciate that we're getting organized and we start to build power within, within the workplace and we don't yet know exactly how they'll respond, so I suppose we're preparing for, for various eventualities. And, and the first thing that we're doing, and the branches can be doing as well, is to inoculate our members. And that is to inoculate them to, to understand the, the power relationships in the workplace, to understand that these companies, the private companies, exist to make profit, and it is therefore completely rational for us to expect them to try to stop us from building the sort of power that will increase their terms and conditions and potentially decrease um, profit levels for the employer. So we're, every every staff member and member we talk to within social care currently, we're, we're alerting them to this, that they can probably expect at some point a response from the employer. Um, and we're even role-playing with members about what that response might look like and how members collectively can respond to it. And the sort of tactics that, that I think we, we can expect is negative messaging about the union or positive messaging about the close and direct relationship that that employers will claim they have with their staff that would be put at risk by a union. Um, they either smother their employees with, with love when they realise the union uh, are looking to organise through maybe you know staff events, meetings with food laid on, something like that, or improvements in terms of conditions. Or they'll seek to divide and intimidate, um, rewarding those staff who back the anti-union message maybe with better shifts, or punishing those who are perceived to be supporting the unions, say, for example, through loss of hours for those on zero-hours contracts. And obviously this can escalate to threats of intimidation, bullying, um, or they may, as we've discussed before, try to set up their own consultation or bargaining machinery. And I think what we need to do when, whenever these things happen is firstly, m- members and, and staff need to understand that actually in its own way, this is, a, this is the first sign of victory. This is a, a recognition by the employer 
of the potential power we have and, and their need they they feel the need to undermine that power so i think firstly m- members and, and staff need to understand that if the uh, the employer is coming after the union is because it's scared. It's because it's scared because it's realised that potentially we're extremely powerful and that should give us some motivation and some energy to continue. And most importantly, we have to make sure whatever the threats are, whatever comes out, that we stand together. And that may be as simple as just staying in touch with each other, keeping those communication lines, make sure every single individual member is supported. Or it could be a more public display, so everyone wearing their unison badge on the same day, for example, to, to really demonstrate to the employer that we're standing together. So you use the word inoculate, but I suppose it's also an educational exercise in, uh, which is quite empowering in itself of uh, showing the workers what those power relationships in the workplace that are affecting their employment are and yeah. uh, some of the reasons why the employer might not want them to be working together, i.e. the employees working together to address their concerns through an independent body rather than through a body that the employer has total control over. Yeah, and I think that, that's a really, it's a really important point and, uh, and I think it shows that actually where we do get um, kind of union busting or, or HR hostile um, techniques thrown at the union, it, it doesn't have to be the end of a union organising drive but by any means. In fact, it could be the start of building a much stronger, a much more politically conscious, a much better organised union in that workplace because if we can train and motivate uh, and support our members and our activists at that very early stage to overcome those sort of challenges and they overcome those challenges successfully then they're going to be a much much stronger and more powerful union at the end of it and also you know both as uh, a potential response to some of those tactics uh, but also it, something that's indicative of why employers might want to uh, avoid an independent trade union getting involved is that you know, it is, it is unlawful for an employer to victimise staff based on trade union involvement, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and it's really important that, that that workers keep a you know keep a log of any potential threats, intimidation, any infringements of their rights at all, and that we start you know we start collating that and building that up because not only could it ultimately you know end up in legal claims, but I think more importantly, we we uh, being a public service union have all sorts of other avenues that we could take such complaints to. So in social care, for example, if we do see uh, an increase in the intimidation of, of staff or of members from hostile employers, then we've got the opportunity by working with our existing branch structure, by inviting the support of other unison organised workplaces and members, we can be taking those kind of complaints en masse to the commissioners and to the politicians and to ensure that that any hostile providers, any any employers who are seeking to intimidate their workforce and our members are publicly held to account for that action. And we're willing to do that. And I think if we do, we can ensure that any attempts to undermine our organising activity are responded to in a way that doesn't just beat the busters, but actually does so in a way that's going to build the confidence and the strength of our future union organisation in these places. Well, that's the end of uh, another episode for this month. But as ever, you can access lots of resources associated with this month's programme on our website at www.unisonnw.org forward slash podcast. And there you can also get in touch with us if there's anything that you'd like us to feature on the podcast in future episodes or if you want to access uh, some of the previous episodes too. But um, another little tiny plug at the end of the programme is that the uh, registration process for next year's Skills for Strength organising convention in the Northwest 
is now open. So if you're a, a Unison Northwest activist and you'd like to join us at our organising convention in March 2017, you can go to www.unisonnw.org forward slash skills for strength all one word and uh, there you can register online for free for that event which is going to be held on Saturday the 11th of March 2017 in the Mechanics Institute in central Manchester uh, but for now thanks very much for listening and uh, see you next time